You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible and uh, can turn to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. Um, as you turn there, you, you know what's coming, right? We, we are studying this book. We are diving deep in this book because we want to, say it with me, know Jesus better love Jesus more, and serve Jesus greater. Um, I want to publicly, I've already thanked them privately, but I want to publicly thank uh, Corey and Chuck for filling in for me last week. Uh, Corey in the morning time and Chuck in the evening. And um, I'm grateful for their willingness to step out and uh, be used in that fashion and, and serve in that position. Um, I thought long, long time ago, many years ago, that uh, preaching or teaching the Word, whether it's in a Sunday school class or a small group or whatever context it is, uh, it's one of those things in our world where people say things like this, man, I could never do what you do. But some of those same people then say, but if I were, this is how I'd do it. And I say that to say it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to to do it as a part of your life. It's not an easy thing to fill in for others. And uh, so I'm thankful for both Corey and Chuck. I told Corey the only thing I had against him is he let you out early last week, and I do not want you getting used to that. So uh, next time uh, we'll, we'll lengthen him a little bit. Uh, we're going to deviate just a little bit today. We're, we're still going to begin here in Hebrews 7, 26 through 28, and, and I'd like you to read with me there, if you will, as we begin this time. This chapter of chapter 7 of Hebrews has been this comparison, this understanding of this Melchizedek, this mystery figure in the Old Testament, and how he overrode and superseded even the, the, <clears throat> the Old Testament priesthood and those who served as descendants of Aaron, and how he was a foreshadowing, if you will, of who Jesus would be. And so the author concludes here, beginning in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, meaning the word of the promise of God, <clears throat> which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Um, I know you have in your bulletin uh, three statements with three blanks, and I'm just going to go on and give you the blanks really quickly. And uh, I'm going to, uh, later today or tomorrow on Facebook, and I'll send it out via email as well, I'll send you sort of a synopsis of these three verses and what I had intended to preach today. Uh, but again, I am changing it up a little bit this morning. But the three, blank, the three blanks are as follows. The verse 26 tells us that Jesus, the perfect priest, was perfect in his life. Jesus, the perfect priest, was perfect in his life, meaning his life here on earth as one of us, like one of us, but certainly not the exact of us, right? Secondly, verse 27 tells us that he was perfect in his death. That his death was a perfect, and, and again, remember, uh, I talked a couple weeks ago, I believe, about how this idea of perfect or perfection is really this idea of completion or fulfillment. 
And so the author gives us that hint there in verse 27 when he talks about Jesus' death towards the end. He did this once for all, this sacrifice once for all, complete, perfect, when he offered up himself. And then thirdly, verse 28 teaches us that Jesus is perfect eternally. He is complete. He is he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. He was that even before he came into existence as a human, as the God-man here on earth. And he is that forever. But today, rather than dealing with all three of those verses, I really just want to focus, with it being Lord's Supper Sunday, on verse 26 and then some additional teaching here in just a moment. The author says... For it was indeed fitting. Fitting a word that means right, uh, suitable, appropriate. Um, an easy way that I came to understand it this week was to understand that fitting means the right choice. So if you're looking to, to fix something in your car or do something in your home, you look at various options and colors and sizes and things, and you end up deciding on one because it is fitting that you choose that, whatever that is, to fill that need. So it was indeed fitting, right, proper, appropriate that God had Jesus come that we should have such a high priest. And look at the way he's... He's developed here in verse 26. Holy. There are, are two primary Greek words in our New Testament that are translated into English and holy. The one that you're probably most familiar with is the word that, when translated holy, speaks of us, for example, as saints. I always find it a very humbling thing to read the letters to the churches in the New Testament. And most every one of them, the author begins in some various way or form to the saints. And then you read about what was going on in those churches. But yet he still calls them saints, holy. A word that means separated out for God's purpose. But there's a second word that's used quite often in the New Testament for the word holy, and it is the word that's used here, and it is a word that does not necessarily mean separated out for God's purpose, but it means it has to do with character and nature. It has to do with the, the morality. It has to do with, with the person and being able to always, if you want to put it in these terms, make the right choice. And so what the author is saying is that we have a high priest, unlike the Old Testament high priests, who were still just as sinful as those they were offering up sacrifices for. But we have a high priest who is holy in his content, in his nature, in his character, in what he has always been and what he will always forever be, he is holy, like us, but different. He is innocent. Innocent is just a word that means uh, without deceit or without guilt, meaning that there, nothing can be pointed to Christ's life that, that he would be uh, guilty of any action or thought, word, or deed. Unstained, a word meaning uh, undefiled. And again, in, in context of what the author is doing here with this predominantly Jewish audience of this letter is to talk about the fact that even the Old Testament priest, they had to go through all sorts of ritual to make sure they were just clean enough to enter into the Holy of Holies. 
And if they should uh, come in contact with a, a person or a situation that, that made them unclean, they had to start everything all over again. But this Jesus has been and forever will be undefiled. He will and always forever be clean. He is unstained. And it says he's separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Uh, I want to touch on that briefly because there have been some that have taken this to say, see, this is calling for us to be completely removed from sinners. This is calling for us to be completely bubbled and away from everybody else. Well, the reality of it is if we read the Gospels, we know that Jesus was not separated from sinners in that fashion. Matter of fact, at one point, the religious leaders in the Gospels say to him, or he says what they're saying about him, the Son of Man has come as a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, he was keeping company with people in such a way that they were implying guilt by association, although he clearly was wholly innocent and unstained, he was without guilt in those situations. He was not separated from sinners in that fashion, but he was separated from sinners as he lived on this earth, as Warren Wiersbe says, that he was within contact of them, but without contamination. He influenced them. They did not influence him. But here I believe the, uh, another better understanding is that we put these phrases together, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, to remind us, if you want to flip over to your left for just a second, in the very beginning of chapter 1 of Hebrews, uh, beginning verse 3, he kind of alludes to this again as well. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author's already talked about that Jesus is separated from us in that he has assumed his rightful position at the throne of God. And so he is separated from us, but yet he is also simultaneously intimately connected through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in all who have trusted and believed. It was fitting. It was right. It was appropriate. Whenever anybody asks you or me the question, why Jesus, our response needs to come from this passage. Why Jesus? Because me and you are not good enough. Why Jesus? Because no matter what your heritage or your tradition or your family background or no matter what you've done, whether you've volunteered for every vacation Bible school since you were 15 or you've taken up communion or you've taken up offering or whatever else you've done, everything that any of us have ever done falls short of the glory of God. And as we think today about taking the Lord's Supper and remembering what he has done for us, it, it's been impressed upon me through this week, and this is partly why I've deviated this morning. It's been impressed upon me this week that we approach this table only in the right fashion when we acknowledge why Jesus, because he's my only hope. He's my only hope. 
There is nothing else that has existed in this world. There is nothing else that will exist in this world. There is no other person, no matter how intelligent they may be or charismatic they may be, knowledgeable they may be, there is nothing outside the person and the work of Jesus Christ that gives us any hope for life at all. And my fear, my concern sometimes is that we approach a moment like this in just a moment when we are called to remembrance and we identify more with the Pharisee in Luke 18 than we do the tax collector. Remember the story? Jesus says two men go up to the temple to pray. One, the Pharisee, stands. Lord, I give tithes and I do this and I do that and I'm not like this one back here. And yet this one back here dares not even lift his head. Beats his chest, which would have been a sign of remorse and repentance. And merely says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says that one went home justified. A word that is used theologically to describe people who are right before God, who are in right standing before God. He says that one went home justified more so than the Pharisee. We only understand the power of Jesus when we understand how much we need Jesus. And his power is only active in our lives when we put ourselves in those positions and situations where he is all we have. Uh, the, The great disconnect for us in modern evangelism has been, oh, I need Jesus to get saved, but I once I'm saved, I can kind of do this all on my own. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews is going to get to that later in this letter where he says that Jesus has perfected for one time those who are being sanctified. A nice churchy theological word that means being made more like Jesus on a daily basis. And that comes by the power and the person of Jesus. It was fitting. It was right. It was appropriate For me, for you, and for every other person who's ever lived in all the history of the world, that God send Jesus to do that which we could not do ourselves. And there's no amount of goodness in anyone that is enough. We come to a time today where we take what's called the Lord's Supper or take communion. And I transparently want to say to you as a pastor, I struggle with communion sometimes. Here's, here's where I struggle. I struggle with how often and I struggle with when. Some traditions have it every day or every Sunday. Some have it once a month like we do. Some have it once a quarter. Some say it's only appropriate in the context of the entire body of the church. Some say it's fully appropriate in the manner of a small group or if a youth were at youth camp and they were to undergo communion at that point, that'd be appropriate. We struggle, and I I struggle. I tend to to think, I tend to lean towards the reality that we probably ought to have it at least offered every time we gather for those who want to remember. But if we do that, does it become too ritualistic? Does it become too commonplace? Does it begin to lose a little bit of its power? If we push it off once a month or once a quarter, is it then not enough to be keep it in the forefront of our mind of what Christ has done for us. 
I struggle with those questions. I struggle with uh, the, the, the format sometimes and, and how it's served. I, there's nothing wrong with it being served in silver or gold trays. There's nothing wrong with it being served and someone taking a, a, an actual loaf of bread and breaking it apart and handing it around. But we do understand from the Scriptures at least the way it's described when Jesus did it with his disciples, and at least the way it's described in other places like 1 Corinthians, that it was a very simple thing. Not a lot of pomp, not a lot of circumstance. A very simple act of remembrance. I struggle sometimes with who should serve it. Again, some believe only certain people within the church should be responsible for serving. Others believe that as long as brother or sister in Christ, you can serve the body, which I think tends to line up a little bit more theologically when you read 1 Peter and he says, we are all a priesthood of believers. A struggle. And the reality of it is that for this moment and most moments in our corporate worship, the things we do and the reasons we do them are more culturally, denominationally influenced than they are scripturally influenced. But even with all those struggles and even with all those questions that run through my mind, and there are many, for me the ultimate struggle is this, how you and I spiritually and mentally approach what we're getting ready to do this morning. In Luke's gospel, when he records Jesus having the Lord's Supper, having the Passover Supper with the disciples, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Paul picks up on that theme in 1 Corinthians when he is writing about the Lord's Supper. And there in the church at Corinth, it had devolved to this uh, free-for-all and this feast. And some were coming with the attitude of just getting their fill of drink and food and everything else. And then leaving and not being involved in a body and not, not waiting for others. And so it had evolved into a very personalized, individualistic, I'm going to get mine kind of a deal. But as he teaches through that, he picks up on that, that Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. What does it mean to remember today? I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we're simply reminiscing. You and I reminisce about great vacations. We reminisce about the glory days of our athletics. We reminisce about points in our careers or points in relationships and families. We reminisce about those things. And the difference is when we reminisce about those things, we remember them, but they don't necessarily call us to action. Remembrance in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, is remembering something that then calls us to action. In the Old Testament, for example, God would remember his covenant that he'd made with Israel in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their pettiness, in spite of their behavior, in spite of their childlessness. God would remember his covenant and he would then act because of the covenant that he had made with them. In the, in the, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So there's this connection from Old through New Testament that to remember is to then be called into action. So what are we remembering here? Well, we're remembering that it was fitting that we had such a high priest who was holy, innocent, unstained, who offered a sacrifice once and for all for all who would believe, that he offered up himself 
that he didn't leave it to anybody else to, to take the pain. He took it himself. We remember that he has done this and that it exists and lasts forever for all who would believe. And remembering that moves us, I believe, to repentance. Remembering that, being acknowledging of that, having awareness of that as one who is a sinner who is not yet saved is to remember it, to acknowledge us, to move to repentance and faith and trust in the one whom, with whom we just described. Remembering it as a saint, as we are so sweetly called in Scripture. But as Louis Giglio said, saints who still sin. Remembering it as a saint is to call us to repentance. It's to call us to confession. It's to call us to be acknowledged of it was fitting that God sent Jesus to do what we couldn't do to provide us a gift that we could not provide ourselves, to give us a life that none of us could manifest on our own, to remember that and to repent. And that's a key piece that misses, I think, particularly for those of us who, by definition, are called saints. Haven't I already repented in my belief? Haven't I already been forgiven? You have. But without repentance, we never experience the full daily power of this Christ. So long as we hold on to things, so long as we hold on to sin, so long as we hold on to guilt, so long as we hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, so long as we hold on to you list it, you fill in the blank. So long as we hold on to it, even in remembrance, this just becomes something that we do because it's something that we do. But in remembrance, when we're moved to repentance... In remembrance that calls us to action, we lay down what needs to be laid down. We approach the throne of grace with confidence and mercy as we saw in Hebrews chapter 4. Because we have a great high priest whose forgiveness knows no end, whose power knows no limit, whose love for you and for me and for all has no end. We remember and we repent. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.